following lecture was produced by the Gnostic Academy of Chicago, a nonprofit organization, and is one of many available for podcast, download, and transcription. You can visit chicagonosis.org to find courses, articles, scriptures, commentaries, and other valuable resources that address a wide variety of spiritual subjects, interests, and needs. Through the generous support of listeners like you, the Gnostic Academy of Chicago has produced online courses, lectures, and articles freely available worldwide. If you have benefited from this knowledge, help humanity through making a tax-deductible donation at chicagonosis.org. If you are interested in attending the Gnostic Academy of Chicago in person, you may view our online class schedule and freely register at meetup.com slash chicagonosis. The Chicagoland Gnostic Academy provides humanity with the necessary means for transforming suffering and acquiring personal knowledge of the divine. With this purpose in mind, we now begin the lecture. May all beings be happy. Consciousness, ego, and personality. So every time that we meet here together, we talk about gnosis, right? What is gnosis? Experiential knowledge. Knowledge of divinity, but that knowledge of divinity that begins with ourselves. Consciousness, ego, and personality are three elements of ourselves that we can understand. And if we start with a basis of understanding this, then we gradually work into an understanding of which part of ourselves is the most divine and how can we strengthen that part. Now, because this is a path of self-knowledge, we've been working with the the practice of self-observation. Before we seek to understand things that we can't see, you know, other dimensions, those types of mystical experiences, we seek to just understand our reality. So with self-observation, we've begun by looking at our three brains. We talked before, last time, about how the three brains are three energetic centers. The body is like a machine that can receive all types of information. We can receive motor, instinctive, and sexual impulses in our body, and that's controlled by the motor, instinctive, sexual brain. We can receive emotional sensations, things that we process usually in the middle region of our body. We can feel anger in our gut or love, warmth in our chest. And that can be divided into superior or inferior emotions. All of us have emotional states that are very pleasant and happy, serenity. Um, But most of the time, unfortunately, we're stuck in emotional states that are states of suffering, anger, depression, misery. So we can use the emotional center in those two different ways, in a superior way or in an inferior way, depending on what we're resonating with. And in the same way, the third center that we talked about, the intellectual brain, which corresponds with the physical brain up here in our head, can be divided into superior thoughts or inferior thoughts. Superior thoughts might be uh, inspired, uh, works of genius, you know, inventive types of creative thought, totally free from repetition and conditioning, while inferior thoughts might be of a more egotistical nature, selfish and repetitive. And if you have been working with self-observation and observing not only external events, but also your internal states of being, you might have noticed that the majority of our life is spent repeating thoughts that we've already thought, emotions that we've already felt before, actions and habits that we've already done, that life becomes a bit like a routine. And we don't know how to escape this, even if we're stuck in habits and emotions and thoughts that don't necessarily bring us any joy. We don't know how we're supposed to step out of that. We talked about how gnosis, self-knowledge, is the fourth path, the path of equilibrium, the path of awakening consciousness. Consciousness is separate from thoughts, separate from emotions, and separate from our instinct and impulses and body. Although consciousness gives us the chance to perceive all of those different types of sensations that we experience, 
that are a part of our life, we can awaken our consciousness separate from those sensations when we are in psychological equilibrium. So we talked last time about looking at our lives, looking at if we're living in an imbalanced way, if there are times when we become too intellectual, getting carried away in theories and ideas, times when we become too emotional, getting attached to sensations and emotional stimuli, dramas on TV, those kinds of things, and not really thinking things through. We're not putting things into practice. Or finally, we might be imbalanced that we are a person that's always on the go, that has a lot of instinctual habits, really identified with our physical body, but we're not really thinking things through. We don't have a lot of emotional depth. By identifying that and working to correct our own imbalances, we can begin to activate a state of conscious awareness. We can begin to self-observe ourselves in a new way. So if you've been working with that practice over the last few weeks, then this question might be something that you're looking at in a new way. Do we perceive reality? So most of us are going to assume, well, yeah, I'm not hallucinating. I see the room around me, and that's reality, right? <laughs> but we want to go a little bit deeper than a superficial understanding of this question. When we're working with practices to understand not just the external world and our, and our habits and life the way that we usually understand it, but to perceive life in a more profound way, in a spiritual way, then we need to question our reality. Because is it reality or is it our perception of reality? To give you an example of this, pretty common that most of us have had a first impression of somebody that was really great and we thought that they were an amazing person. And then later on we found out that maybe they weren't such a nice person after all. Or conversely, maybe somebody rubs you the wrong way. First time you meet somebody, you think, this guy's going to be a jerk. But then not so long later, you realize that they're actually a pretty good person. Maybe they become one of your best friends. So what is it there that tricks us? Why is it that we think we're perceiving the reality of someone or a situation, but then later on, time proves that we haven't actually seen it as it was? A really poignant example of this is a betrayal. So all of us at one point in our life have been lied to or betrayed by someone we've trusted. And that can be a very traumatic experience for the soul. Because in an instant, you realize that someone that you thought you trusted, you thought you knew, you thought you had a good understanding of their character, has said or done something that contradicts everything that you believed. You might go deeper into a state of doubt, questioning not only your relationship with that person, but questioning yourself and what you did wrong, what you didn't see to get yourself into that position. Questioning if, is it just this one person that I didn't understand? Or is it all types of people that I don't understand? Do I even have a grasp of life? The doubt can be really distressing, but it's very important because it shows us a fundamental truth of our situation, which is that we're actually not very cognizant of reality. We're actually in a state where we should feel a little bit of distress because we need to figure out what is it that I'm not seeing and how do I move into that place where I can begin to see things as they are so that I don't continue to follow an unconscious assumption about life and about people and about myself that puts me into a state of greater suffering. But most of the time, after something like this happens, the pain is too great. So we run away from that doubt. We run away from ourselves. We push it down. We blame the other person. Or we get distracted with something else. Or sometimes we run directly into the same situation with someone new. And we end up repeating and continuing our suffering rather than learning from it. Now, with practices like self-observation and meditation, we're able to begin to break that cycle. We're able to begin to understand what it was that we, that we missed, that we didn't perceive, to understand ourselves in a new way, and to step beyond our wrong assumption of reality into a better understanding of reality. So the first of the three elements in ourselves that we're going to look at today to help us to better comprehend reality is consciousness. Now, consciousness, as commonly defined, 
is the quality or state of being aware. And having mental faculties not dulled by sleep, faintness, or stupor. So that is if you're the boxer in the ring and you get knocked unconscious, and then you wake back up and you're conscious again. You know, a very simple, superficial understanding of what consciousness is. But we're seeking again to go deeper, that consciousness is not just being physically awake or physically asleep. That most of the time, in an esoteric understanding of consciousness, we are asleep. We're not perceiving things as they are, but rather we're going through the motions of things only half aware of what's happening, repeating our habits, repeating our routines, but not really being awake, not really perceiving the situation as it is. So in Gnosticism, we define consciousness as the root of our perception of all phenomena. So as I mentioned earlier, consciousness is beyond our mind, our thoughts. It's beyond our heart, beyond our emotions. It's beyond our body. It is through consciousness that we can perceive physical sensations, emotional sensations, and intellectual thoughts. But consciousness is distinct from them. And so when we really begin to work with consciousness in an awakened way, we begin to strengthen that inner energy within ourselves. Consciousness is also understood as the essence of the human soul. So an essence is a synthesis, a seed of something. And in our tradition, we talk about how by working with consciousness, by activating and awakening consciousness, we begin to develop the soul, to develop what's within us in a new way. So one way to test our consciousness right now is, are you aware of the sensation of your thumb on your right hand? Now you are. But you weren't just a few moments ago, maybe. More attention was focused elsewhere. Yeah, right. Well, and that's a good point. A lot of the time our attention is focused on everything else that's going on. You know, we're perceiving a very narrow bit of whatever is happening in the room. About the thumb, I'm sure you actually said something and I changed my focus to what it was at. I didn't realize how it was feeling. I was more intent on what you were saying and how comfortable I am in the seat than mm-hmm. the Right. So if we want to work with consciousness to become more conscious, then we need to be always working to become more aware, to expand our consciousness in every moment. Just like a muscle, the more that you use it, the more that you're able to perceive. However, if we're never working with consciousness, we're only perceiving a sliver of reality. In fact, we estimate that only about 3% of our consciousness is actually active. Whereas if you looked at someone like a Buddha, who is totally awake and enlightened, they can perceive everything around them, everything within them, multiple dimensions of reality. That's, you know, the ultimate goal that we're striving for in our spiritual work is to become awake, to be able to perceive things as they truly are, not just to perceive a narrow or a filtered view of reality. So from moment to moment, we can begin with a practice of just being aware of our body. That's a great way to ground yourself. You know, how we're all the time we're walking around in our body, we're doing all kinds of things, but we're never aware of breathing or the way that our eyes move around to look at things. Right, until suddenly, you know, we trip over something or we have this terrible pain in our back and then then we're aware of our physical body. That's a good place to start. But of course, with Gnosticism, we're seeking to go a little bit deeper even than that, seeking to become aware of the inner parts of ourselves, becoming aware of our consciousness (laughs) itself, our inner psychology so that we gain that self-knowledge. But there's one barrier to becoming conscious. And that barrier is what we call ego. A common definition of ego is the self. In fact, the word is Latin for I, as in me. And another common connotation we have for ego is an exaggerated sense of self-importance. So we can think about this with celebrities, right? That they might walk into a room and demand certain things that other people wouldn't ask for that they might have a sense of themselves, that they are larger than life. Even if physically, we realize that they have a physical body just like us. There might not actually be a physical difference in that person. You know, you put them alone in the desert all by themselves, and, you know, that sense of self isn't going to save them, right? And yet, we see that they have that exaggerated sense of self-importance. It might irritate us, in fact, that they move through life in that kind of way. 
Now the trick here is that all of us have that, not just celebrities. But we don't catch it in ourselves as much because we haven't trained ourselves to look for it. One of the fundamental practices of the Gnostic is to train yourself to catch when your ego is getting carried away. So in Gnosticism, the ego is a false self which filters our perception. And it can also refer to a compilation of all kinds of egotistical desires that give us a sense of self. We might, for example, really be somebody who loves hamburgers. And so that's a sense of my identity. I, I love hamburgers. And I might drive two hours just to be able to get the best kind of hamburger that I want. So I'm feeding a false self. The truth is that you know, if I never saw a hamburger again, I wouldn't die. I'd be able to survive just fine. But because I've developed this sense of identity attached with that sensation of eating a hamburger, then it seems very real to me. And I'll do all kinds of crazy things just to get what I want. So this is a silly example, right? Hamburgers. <laughs> but we can think about it with ourselves. You know, how much do we do to... How much do we sacrifice to have a certain type of job that we believe other people will respect? Or to drive a car or have clothes that show a certain sense of self? How much do we do to feed our own addictions? And I don't just mean drugs and alcohol, but addictions to different types of sensations, like our emotional addictions to drama. How many hours might we spend watching dramatic television shows? And yet all of that is kind of a construction in our own mind. It doesn't have much to do with reality. It's a sense of self that we feed and we make real. A psychological sense of ourselves, self-image, that we believe very much is real. That we will argue with people to the death to defend sometimes our sense of pride. But physically, doesn't actually have a reality. doesn't have much to do with just the regular physical sensations of our bodies. It is exaggerated. Now, there's actually a study that's going on right now at Ohio State University's medical center where they talk about mind wandering. So if we think about the consciousness, pure, free from any egotistical self-interference, that's what they would call in their study, it's a neuroscientific study, they would call it on-task thinking. And so they're able to see in the brain that the brain exhibits different um, activity when we're in on-task thinking. That's when you're perceiving something just as it is, without any thoughts. You're just totally awake and you're there. Now the next level, there's, in addition to that, there are two levels of mind wandering. So when you're perceiving something, let's say you're sitting in a class and you're perceiving something, the person's talking, the professor is going to um, talk about some problems that are going to be on the next test. And then you start to have your own commentary about it. That's the first level of mind wandering. That's a performance-based mind wandering. You might be thinking, oh no, he just said that and I missed what he said and am I going to get that wrong on the next test? Or you might be, um, you know, you're still half aware of what's going on, but there's this other level of being concerned about your own performance. So it can be when you're, you know, listening to somebody talk and you're in your mind disagreeing with everything that they say, then that can be the first level of mind wandering. And then a deeper level of mind wandering is when we're just totally somewhere else. You know, we're sitting there in that class, but we're thinking about how we need to get to the grocery store to pick up the ingredients for our enchiladas so that when we get home, we're going to cook dinner. And we're totally not there at all. So one of the studies that actually came out of Harvard on mind-wandering found that over 50% of our lives, we are mind-wandering. You measure that in the brain. It's a different activity pattern in the brain. But that people who engage in mind-wandering less are actually happier than people who engage in more mind-wandering. I bring up this example because a lot of the time we're thinking about the things that we want. We're fantasizing about, you know, that hamburger, right? Or we're thinking, you know, we're not just perceiving the situation as what it is. We're not just perceiving the uh, painting of the flowers for what it is, but we're perceiving it with our own filter of, well, I don't really like the colors that they chose here, or, ooh, I really like the paint choice of that. You know, we're always 
bringing ourselves into situations rather than perceiving them with that pure consciousness bright and awake. So before we say that that's good or bad, it's just something to be aware of in ourselves. It's just something that we want to observe. And the other element that we want to be able to observe and distinguish from ego and from consciousness is our personality. We talked last time about how most of us believe who we are is our identity in the world. My name, my age, my race, my culture, my job, my family. That we believe all of those things are who I am. And we live our lives investing a lot of time into those things. Commonly defined, the personality is the totality of an individual's behavioral and emotional characteristics. And in psychology, we study personality as though it is something that is relatively stable over time. That someone has a certain characteristic and that's just who they are and they're not going to change very much. And so you'll hear people who will, you know, maybe do something that really irritates other people. That they'll, they'll always defend it and they'll say, well, that's just who I am. You need to accept me for who I am. And sometimes the personality can become egotistical in that way. That we can use different traits of our identity in the world to strengthen a sense of self, to make ourselves feel more real. But when we look at personality in an esoteric way, we look at the root there of personality, which is persona, in Latin meaning mask. And in Gnosticism, we consider the personality just a mask. That it's not the truth of our identity, but rather one superficial part of our identity. Personality is neither good or bad, but it is the way in which we can interact in the world. So we can look at it as an interface with the external world, which allows us to communicate and function in a particular time period and location. So if you had the personality of someone from ancient China, you would never fit in here. You wouldn't eat the same things. You wouldn't wear the same clothing. You wouldn't speak the same language. You wouldn't have the same customs. It would be very hard for you to fit in in the world. So we need a personality. We need these characteristics that we inherit from our family, from our culture, from society and education, in order to be able to survive in the world. But are we able to also look a little bit deeper into what's going on behind the personality, what's driving the personality. When we're moving through the world, it's not just the interface that is acting, but it is our own conscious energy, it is our own psychology which is expressing through that. When you're feeling very kind towards someone and acting towards them in a very loving way, you might be using the same language, the same mannerisms to be able to communicate with that person. But it's a very different experience than when a few days later you're furious at that person and you're shouting at them. So you see there that distinction, that the personality is the same. It allows us to connect with other people. But who do we have driving the car? That's the question. I'd like, I'd like to quote from Gurdjieff something he says about personality and about our own inner self, the deeper psychological self that we're seeking to study here with um, esoteric knowledge. Gurdjieff says, we have nothing of our own. Everything that we put in our pocket is not our own. And on the inside, we have nothing. So we don't want to find ourselves in that situation where we have a lot of material possessions, everything that we put in our pocket. Or even psychologically, we have a sense of self that has been given to us, a name that's been given to us, an identity prescribed to us by the world, but that internally we have nothing of ourselves, we have nothing of our soul, nothing that carries on, as we mentioned last time, that carries on after death. We want to develop our soul, that essence, that seed, into something that is strong and vibrant, shines with a lot of conscious awareness, so that when we come to the end of our life and we have to give up our status, we have to give up our reputation, our wealth, our possessions, and even our physical body, something that survives, right? So this is our situation as we are. We can look at ourselves. This is just a conceptualization, a framework for what, by which we can look at ourselves and examine ourselves. But where did it come from? Have we always had a consciousness? 
have we always had an ego and have we always had a personality? If we think back to childhood, the early years of childhood, there was something different there. Unfortunately, this is starting to change nowadays and children are much less happy, but for most of us, we can recall that the first years of our life we're very happy. We're characterized by a state of bliss. We're free from the types of worries that we have now. You know, I, I have a four-year-old niece, and the way that she goes and interacts with toys and games, you know, she's totally bright and present. There's a lot of pure consciousness there. But unfortunately, as we start to get older, as we enter school, and then later on when we enter into puberty and different psychological stages of development, in which we become very self-conscious and very aware of ourselves, all of that begins to change. The sense of self that we have becomes more developed, becomes stronger, and we're no longer able to just perceive life the way that a child does. Now, it's true that children don't have the intellectual understanding of life that adults have, but they do have a very awakened perception of life that sometimes we lose sight of. Many times we become distracted we have all of those wrong ideas about life, all of those perceptions about life, like we mentioned earlier, that end up actually not being a perception of reality. And so we've lost something that the child has that we can reclaim by working on our own psychology. The founder of the Gnostic movement is Samuel Anveor, and he gave us this quote in his book about fundamentals of Gnostic education. He wrote, the revolutionary psychology of the Gnostic movements in a clear and precise manner makes an in-depth distinction between the ego and the essence, which we know as consciousness. Only the beauty of the essence manifests through the child during the first three or four years of life. Then the child is tender, sweet, and beautiful in all his psychological aspects. However, when the ego begins to control the tender personality of the child, then all the beauty of the essence begins to disappear and the characteristic psychological defects of every human being bloom in its place. So we see that at a certain age, children start to throw temper tantrums. And what are those tantrums about? They want their way. They want their way. They didn't get what they wanted. Billy's playing with the toy and I want the toy. And so I'm going to scream and have a fit and become miserable about the toy. And as adults, you know, we might we might smile at this, oh, that's so silly that, you know, he's so upset about this toy when we know that, you know, 20 minutes from now he's going to be completely thinking about something else and have completely forgotten about the toy. So why is he investing all this energy crying and screaming and getting so upset about it when it's not a big deal? But we do the same thing when it comes to our money, when it comes to our car and we get in a car accident, when it comes to losing something of value to us, we'll freak out. We'll be in misery if a check gets lost in the mail. We lose it. We don't perceive ourselves in that same way. That perhaps this is something that, yeah, it's going to be inconvenient for us. It's going to be causing a little bit of time or effort or energy for us. But in the long run of things, is it really worth becoming so upset, becoming so frustrated about it? And... Part of, part of Buddhism, they talk about the Four Noble Truths of Buddhism. Has anybody heard of those before? So the first is that life is suffering. Second is that suffering is caused by desire, selfish desire, the false sense of self that we're talking about here, that I want, I want reality to be a certain way that I want it to be. And if it's not that way, then I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be miserable about it. And I will. I will make everyone else miserable, too. But the third is that there is a way to cease suffering. And then the fourth is that the way to cease suffering is the Eightfold Path. We talk a lot about Buddhism in the Gnostic studies, not in this particular topic that we're talking about today, but Gnosticism is on that same foundation. It is a false sense of self that we invest a lot of energy into feeding that is actually creating our misery. We think, when I get that promotion then I'm going to be happy. And we desire that promotion, and we work really hard, and maybe sometimes we're lucky and we get the promotion. But then we're not happy because we want something else. We want the next promotion. Or I'm not getting the same credit that the guy next to me is getting, so I'm not happy. We don't see that it is our own sense of self-importance that has created 
our unhappiness. The important thing is not to change our physical life. It's not to renounce promotions or cars or clothing. You know, it's not the point. The point is our psychological relationship to life. That with this exaggerated sense of self walking around expecting life to conform to the way that we wish it would be, we're actually not allowing ourselves to see life as it is. And we're not allowing ourselves to be content with whatever is the experience of life, to be in tune with the experience of life, whether it's happy or sad, whether it's raining outside or sunny, to just accept life as it is and to continue to be, to be present as an essence, as a consciousness, as a soul that gets to experience all the variety of life and its many manifestations. Samuel Veor said something else about personality and essence to distinguish that for us. He wrote that we should understand the human being is born with an essence, but not with a personality. Thus, it is necessary to create the personality. Nevertheless, the personality and the essence must be developed in a harmonious and balanced manner. In the essence, we have everything that we own. In the personality, we have everything that we borrowed. That is, in the essence, we have our innate qualities, our spiritual qualities, our soul. And in the personality, we have the example of our elders, what we have learned at home, in school, and in the streets. So we need both of these things. We need our personality. Personality gives us a chance to experience life, to connect with others, to develop our soul through different types of experiences and learning. And we need the essence, which allows us a conscious perception of those things. We need that essence to become active, because when the essence is asleep, we get into repetitive behaviors. We're just going around like a machine, repeating everything by habit. When the essence is awake, we're able to perceive life in a totally new way. We need a personality and an essence that are developed in balance. But do we need an ego? Do we need a big sense of self? So I've got a comparison here for you. You can think, think of somebody with a big ego, like a talk show host or a radio host. Or a high school football star or something. Right, yeah, or a sports celebrity, sports talks person, I don't know. That people who make a living off of having a big ego exaggerate their personality. They become, you know, maybe extremely politically opinionated or they're very aware of pop culture and everything that's going on with current events. They're able to use their personality in a way that is creating a strong persona so that more people will listen to them. They find it entertaining. You know, they love the types of jokes that that person always makes. And so we look at a talk show host who has a lot of, you know, egotism and a big sense of self-feeding that personality. But is there another side to the coin where we can have a different type of self behind the personality? When we talk about great masters, when we talk about people like the Dalai Lama or uh, Leonardo da Vinci or Buddha or Jesus, we think of those people as having what, are, what we term in Gnosticism a solar personality a personality that comes from the spirit within. So they're able to use the customs, the language, uh, you know, a physical, cultural experience of life, but not to express a big sense of themselves, not to convince everybody that they are the smartest person and they know exactly what they're talking about and everybody should listen to them and follow them. They're able to just express divinity in a very bright, intelligent, and pure way. We can compare someone like that to a light bulb in that the energy, the light of divinity, or the spirit within them is very bright. And when they clean off all the grime on the glass, when they make their personality just that glass that is pure of any egotistical uh, filtering, then that light can shine more brightly. We see a lot of power in those types of people. But it's not a power that tyrannizes others. It's not a power that oppresses or makes others feel less than. It's a power that people are drawn to because it's a natural power from God. You mentioned that we need a balanced development. And I'm going to read one more quote from Samuel and Bior about that. 
says, in practicality, we've been able to verify that when the personality is developed in an exaggerated manner at the expense of the essence, the outcome is a swindler. So that's a cheat or a charlatan. The observation and experience of many years have allowed us to comprehend that when the essence is somehow developed without attending in the least to the harmonious cultivation of the personality, then the outcome is a mystic without intellect, without personality, of noble heart, but inadaptable and incapable. So we talked last time about fakirs, and I think fakirs are a nice example here of the mystic without the personality developed. That They might go off into the desert or into the woods and do all kinds of incredible feats um, of willpower and renunciation. But are they able to come back into society and to help others? Are they able to communicate? Do they have the skills necessary to to be adaptable to different situations in life. So they're, they're developing a lot of the essence, their own being, and that's beautiful. But unfortunately, it's a little bit out of balance. And in that first example he's talking about of a swindler, you know, we, can, we can think of people who, you know, con men, right? People who have that big personality are very charismatic, have a big sense of self, but don't have developed an ethical type of character. They don't have much consideration for their soul, for who they are inside. Or who they hurt. Or, or for who they hurt, right. So they don't have the, the ethics, the conscience of their actions. We want a balanced development of both of these. We don't want to be too much a mystic without any ability to go and connect with others and to learn from life. But we don't want to be too much someone invested in life and getting the most that we can squeeze out of it and hurting other people without any development of the part of ourselves that is hopefully going to be immortal and survive after this life ends. So Samuel Vior finishes by saying, the harmonious development of personality and essence brings as an outcome brilliant men and women. So when we think of people like Mozart or Beethoven or Leonardo da Vinci, Michelangelo, you know, we can see that those were people who had a craft in the world that really developed that to the highest pitch, but were able to also bring some aspect from within their own creative consciousness, from within their own spiritual soul into the world through it and gave us you know, great works of art. And that's what we're striving for. So there's one quote... Um, that I, another quote from Gurdjieff that I want to share. Gurdjieff talks about the essence and he talks about the personality, but he calls them knowledge and being. So the essence would be the being. That's that child who's just there, totally present to what's going on, bright and attentive. That sense of just being, being aware. And the essence would be the knowledge that we gain from external life that other people teach us, our education in school. So Gurdjieff says that People understand what knowledge means, and they understand the possibility of different levels of knowledge. They understand that knowledge may be lesser or greater, that is to say, of one quality or another. But they do not understand this in relation to being. Being, for them, means simply existence, to which is opposed just non-existence. They do not understand that being or existence may be of very different levels or categories. So just in the way that we can go to school and we can develop our knowledge, our personality, we can learn a lot of things about the external world, we can develop the being. We can develop our essence, our soul. And that's what our spiritual practice is geared towards. He says that being or existence may be of different levels. That some people exist in a state of misery. That their being is very low and they're suffering a lot. It's hard to get out of that state. There's other people might exist on a very high level of being. So we talked about, you know, very extreme examples of people like, you know, saints or Buddhas that have a lot of being that emanate love and happiness, even when they are, you know, burned alive at the stake or persecuted, that those people have a, a very elevated level of being to still express compassion. So how do we develop that? You know, it begins by working with first seeing ourselves through practices like self-observation and meditation and little by little coming out of our state of suffering. If we can't be happy in spite of our difficulties, then what's the use of our spiritual practice? 
we're coming to these studies because we're suffering and we want to change. We want to understand ourselves so that we know how do we change? How do we receive the guidance of divinity within ourselves, not from anybody outside of us, but in our own direct experience? So that we don't have to rely on theories or ideas about the way that life is that we've been taught in school, but that we know from our own heart, from our own soul, what life is and how we can come out of our suffering, how we can change in those types of ways. So how do we ascend to those higher levels of being? How do we develop ourselves consciously, spiritually? So I'm going to finish this lecture with a section about the purpose of these three elements. Now that we've come to look at consciousness, ego, and personality and distinguish them a bit, how do we make them useful for our own development? Gnosis is the path to self-knowledge. Just in the way that during our last talk, we, we began to gain some self-knowledge about our habits, our predisposition. Are we an overly intellectual type of person? Are we an overly emotional type of person or an overly physical, instinctive type of person? In the same way, we should gain self-knowledge. We should train ourselves through self-observation to be able to observe these elements of our own psyche. So we talked about the essence. That's the seed of the human soul and how it can be developed through conscious works and upright efforts. If we're not becoming aware of ourselves from moment to moment, if we're not strengthening that muscle of the consciousness, then we're never going to develop it. We're not going to become aware of anything more than the little sliver which we are habitually always perceiving of life. We need to be sure to awaken ourselves in an upright way. So the more that we work with our conscious willpower, the greater the effects of our actions are going to be. We talked last time about how if we work with consciousness in an imbalanced way, strengthening our egotistical self of self, sense of self, if we're working with consciousness so that we can control other people and get them to do what we want them to do, then we're going to develop in an inharmonious way and we're actually going to cre- increase our suffering. When we're working in an ethical way, when we're seeking to bring ourselves out of suffering, to not cause suffering for others, to awaken in that way through upright efforts, then we're strengthening the soul free of any ego. And the ego is the false self. can be considered as an inner adversary because it's trapping us in the conditioning of believing, I want this, I need to get this. And then when we spend years of our lives trying to get the certain job that we wanted so badly and we're there and we're not happy anymore, then we're stuck with this exaggerated sense of self in a state of misery. So how do we become conscious? And do what we need to do to survive, you know, go to work, take care of our families, do those things, but without a big egotistical attachment to it. We also talk in this tradition about how the ego is actually a result of past errors from past lives. So this is a tradition that believes in reincarnation and teaches reincarnation. And that, you know, a lot of our predispositions, which we think that's just naturally who I am, can actually be results of past errors and past lives. We'll talk more about it in, a, in another talk, but the way that we learn from ourselves is by accepting the ordeals that life brings us. Life brings us a variety of situations, and in those situations which can be painful ordeals, we're able to begin to see ourselves as we are. You know, we have a friend that is always talking down to us, really irritating us, activating our pride, that friend is actually giving us a chance to see an element of self there. Now, I'm not saying be friends with people who are abusive and really mean to you. That's not the point. So don't, don't get extreme. But that in different situations in life where we're humiliated or we're angered, you know, or we're really wanting something very badly that we can't have, we're able to see that self in a new way, especially if we're self-observing. And then if we're able to perceive that self in a deeper way, when we're meditating on what we've observed, we might be able to become free of it and to be able to change. And I'll use an example from my own life here in a moment. But I want to finish here about the personality being the mask to the external world. So we need the personality. It's not a bad thing. We need the personality to be able to go through life and to encounter those ordeals so that we can learn about ourselves internally and so we can learn about how to help other people. It's important. So in in the example, to make this all a little bit more concrete for you, how do you actually work with self-observation and meditation to understand these types of things? 
Um, I'll give an example from a couple of years ago when I was first working with these types of practices and I was in school. And I'd been assigned to a group project with two other people, two other students, and we were randomly assigned a topic for our project, so we didn't get to choose it. But I was glad about the topic because it was something that, you know, with my personality speaking here, it was something that I had many years of experience with and that I really liked. Um, the other two students in my group had no experience with it and didn't really care for the topic. And so I thought in this moment that I was going to be really helpful and volunteer to do the majority of the work. So I said, well, you guys don't worry about it too much. I'm going to do most of this. You know, I know, I know all about it, so you guys can just take it easy. But as time went on and we were trying to work together, I realized that they were pretty irritated with me and they were shutting me out. They were doing parts of the project without, you know, doing that in a collaborative way. So I began to be frustrated. You know, my pride got hurt. I was like, why are these people being so hostile to me? I'm just trying to be helpful here. When I was meditating, since I'd been self-observing after one of the meetings in which, you know, I, I felt they were treating me very coldly, um, I was meditating on it, you know, because I choose to meditate, especially on the things that are causing me suffering and I'm trying to understand why am I suffering and how do I make a change here? And I had a strange experience in meditation. It was the first time that happened to me where as I was just replaying the scene as it had happened, you know, as I observed it and in a balanced way with my three brains in equilibrium, suddenly I saw it from a completely different perspective, as though it was in third person, the way that those people would have seen me. Now, originally in my egotistical perspective, I thought I was great, I was being helpful, you know, I was just trying to do the right thing for these people. But when I saw it from the perspective of another in this experience of meditation, I saw a lot of pride, that I was being a know-it-all, that I wasn't having any appreciation for the fact that even if they didn't have years of experience with this topic, they might want to engage with the project. And they might have opinions or insight or things that are valuable. I wasn't able to see that because of the egotistical filter of my perception at the time. When I saw it in meditation, my experience of that situation totally changed. Rather than being angry at them and resentful that they weren't treating me with respect, I was humbled. I felt terrible that I hadn't been appreciating what they were going to contribute to the project. And so from that point on, I changed. You know, I, I gave them way more opportunities to share. You know, I talked less about me and all the things that I know. And the project ended up going a lot better after that point and went very well. And, you know, this might seem like a silly example, but, you know, it's just one small example of many things that we're doing throughout our life. Many things that we have no awareness of how other people are seeing us. And we walk into a room and we think everybody's seeing us a certain way. We might walk in and think, oh, I'm going to sound so smart and everybody's going to think I look so great. Or maybe conversely, we walk into a room and think, everybody in here is going to hate me. Everyone's looking down on me. Nobody in here values me. And none of that's reality. You know, it's this false sense of who we are. It's an image that we carry around within ourselves of what we think other people think about us. But authentic self-observation with the consciousness allows us to begin to perceive ourselves in a real way, and especially when we're coupling that with meditation on what we've observed, we're able to go a lot deeper. And, you know, because of this little change, this little story where I saw my pride and I was able to walk away from that, then after I finished school and I got a new job, I was much more of a team player. I didn't walk into every staff meeting talking and gloating about all the things that I knew and how I was the best person. I was able to appreciate what my colleagues have and to learn a lot from other people that if I held on to that sense of pride, I wouldn't have been able to learn. And, you know, it's interesting that we see this a lot in other people. You know, we all have that friend who's the one-upper. You went to New York last weekend? Well, I went to Paris, and I, you know, met with the Dalai Lama. You know, we, we know that person. We, we see that in other people, and it's really irritating, and we don't like it, and, you know, kind of roll our eyes, and, yeah, yeah, okay. But why don't we see that in ourselves? That when we're in the limelight, when everybody's finally listening to us, we want to brag and get everybody to like us and think that we're great. You know, maybe not in these exaggerated examples that I'm giving, but in small ways, in little ways. We're not perceiving it in ourselves. A lot of the time we can see it in other people because it shields us from seeing ourselves. We get frustrated and angry with other people. We project onto them and criticize their negative qualities because it's painful for us to see our own state. 
we need a really radical sense of sincerity and humility if we really want to be serious about achieving this type of self-knowledge in our own spiritual work. So we can use myths in order to understand archetypes in ourselves. The Greek mysteries are very deep, and they give us a chance to understand psychological teachings. Sometimes people think that Greek myths are all about these gods in the past and, you know, pagan worship and, um, you know, that they're literal figures. But if we use myths in a way to understand our own spiritual development and our own psychological processes, they can be very useful for us here and now, not in some ancient time, but here and now in our own psychological work. The Myth of Dolos, Spirit of Deception In Greek mythology, Dolos is the spirit of trickery and guile. He is also a master at cunning deception, craftiness, and treachery. He was the son of Gaia and Aether. The name Dolos is translated as deception. Dolos was also an apprentice of the titan Prometheus. Dolos became known for his skill when he attempted to make a fraudulent copy statue of Veritas in order to trick people into thinking they were seeing the real statue. He ran out of the clay he was using to create the statue and had to leave the feat unfinished as he quaked in fear while his skill master Prometheus looked over his attempt at deceitfulness. To his surprise, Prometheus was rather amazed at the similarity between the statues, so Dolos then became a master at his crafty and tricky ways. The following account comes from Aesop's Fables. Prometheus, that potter who gave shape to our new generation, decided one day to sculpt the form of Veritas, Truth, using all his skills so that she would be able to regulate people's behavior. As he was working, an unexpected summons from mighty Jupiter called him away. Prometheus left cunning Dolos in charge of his workshop. Dolos had recently become one of the god's apprentices. Fired by ambition, Dolos used the time at his disposal to fashion with his sly fingers a figure of the same size and appearance as Veritas with identical features. When he had almost completed the piece, which was truly remarkable, he ran out of clay to use for her feet. The master returned, so Dolos quickly sat down in his seat, quaking with fear. Prometheus was amazed at the similarity of the two statues and wanted it to seem as if all the credit were due to his own skill. Therefore, he put both statues in the kiln, and when they had been thoroughly baked, he infused them both with life. Sacred Veritas walked with measured steps, while her unfinished twin stood stuck in her tracks. That forgery, that product of subterfuge, thus acquired the name Pseudologos. And I readily agree with people who say that she has no feet. Every once in a while, something that is false can start off successfully, but with time, veritas, truth, is sure to prevail. Okay, well, I want to talk more about this video, you know, this myth in our discussion. So I'm going to break it down a little bit, and then we'll wrap up and we'll move into discussion. So let's talk about some of the symbols in this myth. Uh, hopefully you caught them. One of the main characters of the myth is Prometheus, who is actually um, teaching dolos. Prometheus is a Greek word that means forethought. Prometheus is known for being a titan that was very wise and had the forethought of future things. He's credited with creating man from clay, like all of humankind he created, and that he stole fire, the creative power of the gods, to give it to mankind so that mankind would be able to develop beyond the animals, so that mankind would be able to progress and create all kinds of feats and inventions in new ways. The next character is Dolos. So Dolos is the spirit of deception. Dolos actually means deception. And in this story, he crafts a statue that is so so well-constructed that it almost fools his master, Prometheus. He's a trickster that's known in many other stories for being able to fool even the gods and get the gods to make mistakes. 
And when we look at these two statues, they're also very important. So one statue is Veritas, the truth. Veritas means truth, actually. And Prometheus, who's this great archetype related with our consciousness, but actually a much more elevated aspect of our own spirit and being uh, than we're going to get into today. Um, when he creates truth, he does it in order to create a form which can regulate humans' behaviors. So we can think of truth as an archetype for the soul that is something given to us spiritually, but that we have to develop, we have to give it life in order for it to guide us into living in a true way, to perceiving reality in a true way, performing those upright actions. And the other statue, which is created by deception, his apprentice, is pseudo-logos, which means lie. And that would be what we've been talking about, the false self, that our own self-deception fuels our creative power into creating a false self that doesn't have any feet, spiritually speaking, doesn't get us anywhere. And in the end, when we've given our life to both statues, we'll be able to see, like Prometheus does, which one can walk and which one doesn't get anywhere. When we continue to fuel the false self, we're stuck in our tracks. In the beginning, it seems really great. It might look the same, even. That's the way it is with a lie. It starts off well. But that over time, the truth prevails. The truth comes out. And so we want to... We want to study our lives in a way that we're able to begin to discern between these two elements. Now, a little backstory about Prometheus is that he had a brother. The brother's name was Epimetheus, which means hindsight. So Prometheus was the, is an archetype of foresight, and Epimetheus, an archetype of hindsight, someone who learns from the past. Doesn't, isn't able to predict what's going to happen next, isn't able to act wisely and intelligently to take steps in directions that are positive, but somebody who makes a, a lot of mistakes and has to learn from, unfortunately, the suffering of those mistakes. So you can see a correlation there. In this myth of Prometheus, it says, After the gods have molded men and other living creatures with a mixture of clay and fire, the two brothers, Epimetheus and Prometheus, are called to complete the task and distribute among the newly born creatures all sorts of natural qualities. Epimetheus sets to work, but, being unwise, distributes all the gifts of nature among the animals, leaving men naked and unprotected, unable to defend themselves and to survive in a hostile world. Prometheus then steals the fire of creative power from the workshop of Athena and Hephaestus and gives it to mankind. So Epimetheus is a symbol here of our own lower qualities, our lower state of being. He's giving all of the best forces that we have, our life, our energy, into those qualities of anger, of pride, of envy, of greed. He's giving it to the animal nature that we have within and because of that, the human part of us, the highest archetypes of what we see as an ideal for humanity, human virtue, goodwill for others, you know, love and wisdom and reason, there's no energy left for that. They're left naked and unprotected, unable to defend themselves in a hostile world. But Prometheus is the other side of this. Prometheus steals that creative power from the gods, the consciousness, and gives it to mankind to develop, to progress them, to make them higher than the animals. And in our spiritual work, that's what we're seeking to do. We're seeking to move from that level of being that's categorized by suffering, repetition, you know, animal types of desires. And we're seeking to move into a human state that emanates love and reason and wisdom, that sees reality from a higher perspective. So we kind of already talked about some of this, that we can see that these archetypes in the Greek myth relate to ourselves, Prometheus being a creator of our life. He, in the myth, he breathes life into both statues and puts them into the kiln. And in the same way, we're taking our consciousness and we're breathing it into both, you know, a false part of ourselves, you know, the false identity that we're clinging to and that we're feeding with a lot of our time and energy. And we're also breathing that life into pure parts of ourselves, you know, our love, our creativity, all the things that we have to offer the world. And by doing that, we're able to, if we're aware, if we're self-observing and meditating, perceive which one is the reality, which one is helping us to develop spiritually to rise out of suffering 
which one is causing us to remain trapped in greater states of suffering? Two examples of the ego, we can have epimetheus, afterthought, hindsight. And we can have dolos, which is our own self-deception. That intentionally or unintentionally, we're deceiving ourselves a lot of the time into believing that we're somebody that we're not. You know, sometimes it can be a good thing, you know, we, we're believing ourselves to be somebody better than we are. You know, we like to think that we've got it all figured out and you know, we're the guy that's reliable and nobody else is as good as us. Or sometimes we can have a self-deception that, well, I'm incompetent and I've got nothing to offer and nobody's going to listen to me. You know, any variety in between there. But we're not perceiving ourselves as we really are. So we need to train ourselves to awaken consciousness to be able to do so. And as I mentioned earlier, two statues are representing aspects of our personality. That is, that personality being driven by a false self-image. Is it something that we're feeding and we're developing our personality a lot for our own egotistical gain, for our own sense of self and getting what we want, feeding our desires? Or is it a personality which embodies the truth, the divine archetype of our soul that doesn't need any egotism but can shine with a lot of radiance and power to be able to live in a wise and compassionate way? So I'm going to finish here with two quotes from Samael Mbewar. In the first, he talks about two consciousnesses, referring to these two statues that we've just learned about. He says, we must get to know to be able to comprehend that the human being is divided into two consciousnesses, the true and the false. When one comes to this world, one brings within the essence all the data which is deposited by nature that one needs for the inner self-realization of the being, that is, for the development of our own soul. But what happens? One is put into schools where one receives a false education and much advice and precepts that are futile, spiritually speaking. In the end, one creates a false consciousness, the true consciousness within, which are with the deposited data that one needs to follow the footsteps, to follow the path, to arrive at the liberation of the being, the spirit, remains at the bottom, sadly categorized with the name of subconsciousness. So he goes on to say, we have to throw away all that constitutes our false consciousness in order to cause our true consciousness to emerge to the surface so that we can work with it, so we can begin working with our consciousness rather than our ego. This shows us that in order to work psychologically, that is, in order to put the true wisdom into play, one needs to become a child, stripped of all theories. So as a child, we're talking about that state of cognizant awareness of life, perceiving things as they are, perceiving reality as it is, not as we wish it would be. Not a child in a naive sense, but a child with the purity of the spirit, but with the wisdom of experience. So that means that we need to begin to strip ourselves of some of the theories. Sometimes we cling to our idea about life or the way that other people are, or what I need to do to get ahead. And all these theories might not actually have a basis in reality. They might be things that we've told, been told by other people, things that sound good. But it's only by working with our own consciousness and our own self-observation, our own meditation and guidance from within, becoming a child of divinity, that we're able to grow psychologically and spiritually to increase the true self. But we need to be able to abandon our self-deception in order to do that. As long as we're clinging to our idea and believing that the way that I'm perceiving life right now is how it is and I've got it figured out, we're never going to see it in a new way. We're just going to keep repeating and living off of that. So the question for us to finish with is, what is false in us? Hopefully, as we've been talking and giving some examples, you've been able to think about yourself a little bit. And that's you know, what we're going to close on with our discussion is considering with a radical sincerity, with total honesty with ourselves. What is it that we've been investing our lives into that, spiritually speaking, doesn't have any significance? It's not to discard our duties to our family, to our jobs, to society. It's not to run away from our responsibilities, but to use those as places in which we can self-observe, in which we can meditate on our life, and use life as a school for our own spiritual development to develop the truth of ourselves to become those brilliant men and women that were mentioned earlier.
It is only first by seeing the lie that we're going to be able to renounce it. As long as you don't see the lie or you believe that it's the truth, you'll never be able to see beyond it. And so we need to start by looking at ourselves, not at other people, not at anything you know else going on in the world. Until we can see ourselves, then we won't be able. Then we're not able to see anything else. So we start with self-knowledge, and then we grow in our knowledge of other aspects of reality, the universe, and divinity. Do you have any questions? Sure. Uh, Margie had one comment on the last slide you showed us. Mm-hmm. That we must become as a child. Um, that reminds me of something that Jesus quoted that in order to enter into the kingdom of heaven, you must be a little child. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he says, Verily I tell you, unless you change and become as children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. It's in the book of Matthew. Yeah, Yeah, that's the same sentiment, exactly. That, you know, if we're hoping to reach a higher level of being, Mm -hmm. we have to first become pure like a child. To learn more about the knowledge covered in this lecture, we invite you to study the books available through Glorian Publishing or GnosticTeachings.org. You can also view free online courses, lectures, transcriptions, and articles available at ChicagoGnosis.org. All of this is made possible by the support of listeners like you. Have you benefited from this knowledge? Help others by making a tax-deductible donation at chicagognosis.org. We thank you for listening. We hope that these lectures aid you in developing your complete and divine potential. May all beings be happy. May all beings be joyful. May all beings be in peace.